So yesterday was Canada Day as we celebrated 150 years as a nation and as a family uh, we went to Columbia Park with thousands and thousands of other people and we took in the fireworks. And I was sitting down watching the fireworks and next to us there was this little boy. And I was watching the fireworks like an adult, you know. We've seen lots of fireworks over our lifetime, so I was enjoying them, but I was also kind of watching them like an adult, you know. Oh, that's, that's nice. And, oh, boy, is my butt getting kind of damp? And I said, oh that, oh, that was a loud one. You know, I was the, this little boy next to me, though, every single one. Firework. Everyone. He didn't miss one. The whole show. Everyone. And I started enjoying it more because of him. I'm like, I've kind of seen this in this little boy. Yeah. And then every once in a while there'd be the big ones. Boom. And he'd go. And I'm saying this because when it comes to the gospel... And God's grace in seeing what he has done for us, church, and being people of faith. Over time, we can come to church and listen to grace like adults. You know, hmm, that's good. You know, oh, Paul's going to go to Genesis 3. You know, this is going to be 10 weeks in Genesis? I've heard, "Mm, that's good, okay. But you know, the gospel of God's good news, it's news. It's always new. It's like that little boy looking at the firecracker. I mean, there were different, they, 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 they kept blowing up. And we, you know, during the course of a one hour firework show, you see the same ones come up later. But when the same ones came up later, he responded like it was the first time he saw the firework. And you know, God is a God of infinite youth. Infinite grace, infinite joy, infinite celebration. And every seven days, he commands us. He says, stop what you're doing and come and rest and let the glory of my grace in Christ explode in your heart. And Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, go, yes, it's good. Again, it's still good. And so this morning, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read the first 19 verses. And before I read them, I'm going to read two verses from chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. And we're going to look at how the pervasiveness of sin was met by God's grace. And even if you're new to church, even if you're new to the scriptures, um, what I'm about to read is very familiar because you would have heard of it just culturally, you know, during your lifetime, about the beginning and what happened in the garden and with Adam and with Eve. And we're going to look at something that's very familiar. And my prayer is that as we, as we unfold this uh, scripture this morning, that the Holy Spirit would go off in your heart like a firecracker. And you would walk out of this place, rested in with this real, like that little kid. May we all be like little children, again, in front of God's grace. Genesis uh, chapter 2, 15 and 16. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the servant, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit, the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And, Adam, and to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is God's word. Now as we look at this text today, we're going to see the pervasiveness of sin, we're going to see the lavishness of God's grace, and here's what we're going to look at. Here's today's sermon in a statement. It's this, the cause of our alienation is sin. And the cure for our alienation is God's grace. So firstly, how is sin the cause of this alienation? Well, we're going to unpack it in kind of four ways in a minute here. We're going to see that we've been alienated from God, alienated from each other, alienated from ourselves, and alienated from nature. You see that all in Genesis 3. We'll, We'll look at it in a minute. But I want you to notice that there's a lie here that God's ownership and mastery over our over us as the creation, it limits and diminishes our dignity. That's, that's the lie. And notice that the emphasis of God's words were reframed. In chapter 2, God says, you shall surely eat everything. But when the devil presents the lie, he says, did God say, you shall not surely eat? He reframes God from being a fulfiller to being a restrictor. And this is the great lie that uh, led our parents into this place of autonomy, uh, from God and alienation from God. So alienation began from believing this lie that if we were to live our life under God's rule, that's a threat to freedom. If you live your life under God's rule, that's a threat to fulfillment. But ironically, living under God's rule is the means to both fulfillment and uh, to freedom. There's great freedom and great liberation in living dependent on God as a creature. But there's great anxiety in having to live independent from God be our own gods, and uh, be our own creators. 
And so in verses 7 through 10, we find that our sin caused this alienation from God, from each other, from ourselves, from nature, and it, and it, it touched everything. It, it left nothing untouched, uh, this sin. I'm going to give you a picture of this. My grandmother is West Indian, and as a West Indian, she cooks with a ton of spices, okay? And she would order spices special out of Toronto because they came right up from the West Indies. And she, So her whole apartment for decades has been just thoroughly saturated in these spices that she cooks in. She gave me this chair. I brought the chair home. And it's like all you could smell was the strong spices from, from the cooking. We said, we've got to try and get the smell out of this chair. I mean, some of these are strong curried spices. So I took the chair into the garage, and I'm baptizing this chair. I'm baptizing it, baptizing it, baptizing it, trying to cleanse it. And uh, I realized this, is, this doesn't need baptism. This needs exorcism. I mean, this is a whole other level. So I had to get rid of the chair. I mean, I just got rid of it. It, it was thoroughly permeated. Genesis 3 gives us a picture of sin thoroughly permeating the earth. Because normally, when we hear sin, and the cultural conversation about sin is like doing a bad thing, this immoral action. And I'm not going to downplay it like it isn't doing bad things or it isn't a moral action. But what you get in Genesis 3 is that it's way more pervasive than that. It's, it's not about an intense immoral action. It's about extensive, desperate condition. When you think about eating fruit from a fruit tree, that's not an intensely immoral action. Now, you, I mean, it is, uh, it is in the sense that God commanded them not to do it and then they did it. But I'm just saying the act in and of itself, eating a piece of fruit... It's not this intensive action, but it was extensive in its impact, and it was extensive in, its, in the condition that it created for all of us. It's like I had this deck, uh, and it got a lot of moisture in it, and the moisture permeated the lower level of the deck, because the guy who built it, he built it right on the dirt. He, there was no cement, there was no space, it was like the, right on the grass. Right? So he goes and he built the deck on the sand, and the deck on the sand fell flat, right? Okay? And so it, the moisture got into everything. I pulled that whole deck out by hand, not because I'm a strong guy, but because it was rotten. I didn't need any tools. I pulled the whole thing out. I pulled it out of the side of my house by hand. I pulled all the joy, I pulled the joist, I pulled everything out. It was totally rotted. But from, from the outside, certain parts of it were visibly rotten. Other parts of it looked fine. A lot of times when we think about sin... We're like, okay, that's really rotten. That's really gross. I mean, what that person's up to, that's horrifying. But this isn't. But underneath it all, it, sin had, was pervasive. It was extensive. Everything was rotten. And so this is why we all need God's grace. See, the, the lie wasn't just saying, well, I'm going to break the rules of God. The lie of the devil was live independent and find fulfillment apart from God. And so the reason why we all need grace is because even though it's true that all of our sin in this room, it's not equally intensive, but it's all equally extensive. Therefore, we don't relate to each other with comparison. We mind our own sanctification. We love one another and we live with compassion because we recognize that all of us need grace. If somebody walks through this door, regardless of who they are, regardless of their background, regardless of what they've done, the reason we can extend compassion is because sin is extensive. We're not in a comparing game of whose is more intensive. And so this is what we learn from, from Genesis 3. The, the doctrine of sin in the Bible is not that we hate ourselves. It's not that we think less of ourselves. It's not that we think we're worms. It's that we recognize we can't save ourselves. This is the doctrine of sin. That it was so pervasive. We were created very high. We don't come into church 
and confess our sin every week because we think we're worms. We come in and we confess our sin because we know we were created very high, but we fell. And now we confess that the Spirit would continually do reform and restore. We know that's going to take a lifetime. We know none of us are going to be perfect in this life. We know that. But the posture of our heart is, I don't want to live independent from God and believe that lie. I want to return to this place of dependency and peace and freedom. In 1970, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote an essay. C.S. Lewis is a really prolific writer and philosopher. And in the 70s, he wrote an essay called God in the Dock. And in it, he wrote this. He said, it's not a question of God sending us to hell. It's that in each of us, there is something growing which will of itself become hell unless it's nipped in the bud. And what he was talking about was we're all born into an extensive condition, a condition that left to our own, we are going to desire independence from God. So God in his great grace interrupts that trajectory for all of us in his time and in his way, in beautiful ways. This is what he does. And so the reason why I'm taking so much time to, to, to camp on this about sin being extensive and not intensive is because if we minimize it to being actions, we're going to run away from God's grace in two different ways. If sin is just about actions, then if we become irreligious, we're going to run away from God's grace by doing this. We're going to say, I'm going to decide which actions I think are good. God is going to now reveal to me through his word some actions that conflict with the actions that I'm okay with. Now I'm going to put God on trial because he is, he is talking about actions that I disagree with. And he needs to get on board with my actions that I have predetermined are okay. And now I'm going to be the judge and jury over God and I'm going to come to the verdict that he's guilty of infringing on my freedom. If we become irreligious and sin is about actions, we're going to decide what the good actions are and we're going to judge God on the basis of that. But the other, if you swing into the other ditch, if we become self-righteous and religious, we'll run away from God's grace in a different way. We'll say, well, if sin is just about actions and I seem to be doing pretty good moral actions, in fact, come to think of it, my moral actions are better than your moral actions, so therefore I think I'm more righteous than you and I'm actually banging on all cylinders and getting it right and you're not. And then it creates this whole culture of comparison. We're still running away from God's grace in our self-righteousness because we think that our good actions are saving us. And nobody's good actions are saving them. Starting with this preacher. It's God's grace in Jesus Christ. And all my chips are on Jesus. And because that is true, I desire to live to his glory. But we'll run away from his grace in either posture in either way. So Genesis 3 erases all this comparison and it announces that it's not... It's not a new set of actions that we need. It's a new condition that we need. We've been born into a condition, and somebody needs to interrupt and save us from that sinful condition. So we see that there's alienation from God. And in verse 8, they heard and they hid. That's what sin did. They heard and they hid. And that's what we do, too. We fall into this place of hearing about God or hearing God hearing God's grace or hearing God's voice calling us for those who've been in the church for a while. And we hide this alienation. It's a Hebrew, to walk with God, it says God walked with him in the cool of the day. It's a Hebrew idiom. It's like you guys saying, this person walked me through something. You don't mean you physically walked someplace. It's intimacy. It's closeness. It's being in it. And, and God walked with Adam in the cool of the day in the garden. And no, no doubt, possibly, there was, you know, there was a physical element to that. But the point is that it's in the Hebrew language, just like in the English language, it's an idiom. He's saying that there was an intimacy, and now that was gone. It was instantly broken. And that alienation with God, it created something. He traded his assurance for anxiety. 
And when you and I experienced that alienation from God, maybe before we came to faith in God, or even after, as believers, we've placed our faith in God, but we start to kind of live with him in the kind of the background, and something else has kind of become our temporary God that we're chasing and making a whole life about. We trade our assurance for anxiety. And that's what we saw happen in the beginning. So they hid, right? And so God asks them where they are, not because he doesn't know, not because he needs information, because he's drawing their attention to their need for his grace. He's been seeking and saving from the beginning. He sought Adam out, seeking to save him, seeking to save you and I. We see this pattern of God's grace from the beginning. But we see also the alienating effect of sin today as well. So if you and I, if we fall into destructive patterns or our life falls on hard times and we shake our fists at the sky and say, where are you, God, because this terrible thing is happening, and we've all been through these things, you know, or we get really busy and we decide that something else is our God now and we're pursuing this because this particular thing is really going to fulfill us if we get it. Um, what happens? What do we do? We think about it, church. What, have, what has the church always done when we, when we all of a sudden come to the re- realization that we're sinful? Do we run to church? No, we don't. We stay home from church, right? I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're like, move on from the sermon preacher. I'm sitting right here. But all of us, I'm, I, I want us to sympathize. I want us to have sympathy for those who run from worship because we've all done it, right? And we run from worship because of why Adam ran from God, God's presence. It's the same reason. And when we've done it, I, I think in my life of the times that I ran from worship, it's kind of like, I feel guilty. I feel terrible. Um, and so what I'm going to do is i got to like, fix myself, and then I'll come back. So nobody can ask any questions because I don't want anybody to judge me. We have a thousand reasons why we do it. But he, they heard, and they hid. This alienation from God. And we fall into, the, fall into the same thing. And so I want to encourage you that the church is not the gathering of the good. Because if the church was the gathering of the good, then only good people would be coming here. The church is the gathering of those who worship the only one who ever was good, who God now in his great grace calls us good, even though we look in the mirror and we know we're still not that good. So the church, if, if you were to liken to anything, it's a hospital where we come and where the Spirit does his healing work, and he continually does his healing work. He already saved our lives back on the cross. So... He's already done that work, but week in and week out, he's now applying, by the power of the Spirit, by the power of his word, his great grace to continually heal us, to continually reform us, to continually renew us. So there was that alienation from God, but there's also alienation from others, and you see that in verse 17, or verse 7, as they sow the fig leaves to hide from each other. Well, they're husband and wife, so being naked, obviously, isn't an issue. So I want us to think about these fig leaves and the hiding from one another, the alienation that Adam and Eve had from each other in a, in a, in a, broader, uh, in a broader sense. They were no longer trusting God in transparency. Therefore, they could no longer trust each other in transparency. And the reason why our, all of our relationships experience strain and there's tension in the world on every level of every relational problem is because our alienation from God uh, has created a lack of transparency and a lack of trust, which has now gone horizontal. And it's impacted all of our relationships with others. So we're very guarded, right? We were created to relate with a sense of assurance and a sense of peace uh, in the deepest part of our souls. So that the way we related to one another, it stemmed from the knowledge that we're loved, we're accepted by our creator. right? And that would enable us to relate to others with humble, loving, transparent confidence, right? But because sin permeated every part of our soul then what happens is it's continually skewing our disposition. 
So that in all of our relationships, uh, the sinful you know, tendency, the sinful temptation, is that instead of a posture of loving and giving, we're in a posture of guarding and protecting. And so there's that alienation with one another. We know what the answer is. We, we all know intellectually the answer is you love, love people. Uh, so we know that's the answer, but we struggle to do it. And the reason we struggle to do it is because that sin is so pervasive. And, um, you know, Paul gives us this in Romans 7 when he says, the thing I know I'm supposed to do, I don't. The thing I know I'm not supposed to be doing, that's what I do. Who's going to deliver me from this? So this is what Paul wrote. Because we know the answer is love, but we struggle with it, right? Universally, all North Americans would teach their children. It's not good to hit people on the playground, right? But yet all North Americans, you know, we're a part of the nuclear arms race like everybody else. Well, that's interesting. We, you know, how does that, how, where does that disconnect come from? Johnny, don't hit people. It's not nice. Boy, we've got we to ramp up this military thing by, we've got to get in the game. We're going to be able to protect ourselves, right? When it's the world sandbox, we're very interested in being equipped to hit people. You understand? This is just an interesting dichotomy of the human soul. In uh, the 1800s, there was a Russian philosopher. His name was Dostoevsky. He wrote this uh, book on ethics and morality. And he touches on, you know, he's just kind of looking in his own soul, this philosopher, and he realizes, he's like, there's, some, there's a disconnect here. And this is what he wrote. Uh, it's a book, a book he wrote called The Brothers of Carmen, uh, 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 Karamazov. There we go. This is what he says. He says, I love mankind. But I marvel at myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love human beings in particular. In my dreams, I would go to the cross for human beings if that was suddenly required of me, and yet I'm unable to spend two days in the same room with someone. As soon as someone is close to me, their personality hampers my freedom. In the space of a day and and night, I'm capable of coming to hate even the best of human beings. One, because they take too long to eat their dinner, and two, because they have a cold and they're perpetually blowing their nose. I just thought it was brilliant. He's like, I know the right thing to, I know the right thing is to love people, but that's so hard, so difficult. Why do I have this internal ethical turmoil happening? And we can all relate to that, right? Plato in his, in his Republic, he said that the city is the city is sick, the city is fevered, it's ill, and he said that the the soul of man is the city. I'm sorry, the city is the soul of man writ large. Saying all of the ills in the soul of man, and that's the city writ large. And this is kind of how he kind of looked at it, his political philosophy. So we know we should love each other, but what's, what's the disconnect? And of course, in Plato's day, it's like, yeah, we know we should be just and love each other, but we, did, we kind of wipe the blood from our swords, and then we plant crops, and we kind of move on. And we study world history. The interesting thing is that we discover that all of the relationship breakdown and alienation I'm talking about, it's not just individual, but across people groups, Right? The history of every nation and every culture, it has a common thread. At some point, some people group alienated another one. That alienated group, you know, ended up being oppressed or had injustice done to it. And there's no nation that's exempt from this. There's no culture that's exempt from this. It's just part of world history. And even today, we, we champion tolerance, uh, but we can, we can champion it in an intolerant way. We can say, well, my view is blue and your view is red, and therefore, because my, my view on the subject is blue and your view is red, my view is tolerant and your view is the personification of narrowness. Right? How did that, how we arrive there? Well, what happened to the discourse? Right? Uh, but we do this, right, of course, because, you know, you're not, you're not a narrow-minded person because you have conviction, or you're not hateful because of conviction. What makes a person hateful is how they treat everybody else that doesn't share their conviction. So we see this alienation. There's an alienation from ourselves. Again, in verse 3, you know, 
they, they were naked. All of a sudden, then they know their eyes are open. What's going on? I mean, they knew they were naked before. I'm just talking, like, you know, intellectually speaking. It's not like they didn't know. It's not like Adam and Eve just looked at each other in their eyes the whole time. I'm, I'm fairly certain of that. So, I mean, they knew, but now, now there's a contrast. Because in chapter 2, they knew they were naked and they weren't ashamed. And in chapter 3, now they know they're naked and they, and ashamed. they, am, they are ashamed. So there's an alienation from ourselves in shame. This shame. That sh- shame is a sense of unease at the core of our being. It goes way deeper than, you know, I did something wrong. But this shame is that you know, I am wrong. Me, my being, everything about how I am is wrong. This deep sense of shame. It was a radical psychological dislocation that happened in Genesis 3. Alienated from God, alienated from each other, even psychologically alienated from themselves. There's this great sense of shame that they never knew, that they never knew before. Because, of course, we were, it's unavoidable. We were created to know ourselves in relationship to knowing God. And when that alienation from God happened, then there was an alienation within our, our own selves of knowing ourselves. And so we run after and clamor after things to try and... Get a sense of identity. John Webster is the professor of uh, theology at the University of St. Andrews. He wrote a book on the dignity of creatures, and this is what he said. He said, we've been summoned to God for life in a particular direction, with a particular bearing. Life is from the Creator, determined to be lived under the Creator, for the Creator, and with the Creator. And so as creatures, we weren't merely caused, but summoned to fulfill our nature over time to realize ourselves in the form of the creator who bestowed upon us. And so we see this alienation. There's also the alienation from nature in verse 17, where the ground is cursed. And I'm not absolving us as, us as humans of our responsibility for the wheels-off environmental impact that has occurred as a result of our you know, unparalleled materialism. We need to take responsibility for that. We need to be involved uh, very deeply in caring about those kinds of things. And so... We're not just going to say, well, sin is, you know, the earth is broken because of sin. We've contributed in fantastic ways. But here what we find is that, in Romans 8 talks about this, that creation itself is groaning for restoration. And the reason it's groaning for restoration is because death came in. Right? That's why God says in verse 19, you're going to return to the dust. And that's foreign, this idea of death. That's why, you know, I've officiated a lot of funerals. I've officiated funerals for Christians and non-Christians. And I'm going to tell you, there's a common thread. And it's that everybody sits there at a funeral, and there's this feeling of everybody kind of communicates. It's like, this isn't right. Why did this happen? Now, intellectually, we know why it happened. But it's our soul is crying out beyond our intellect. It's saying, why? Because we weren't, it's like we weren't created for this. This death is, this death is, is horrible. It's as if our soul, the soul of humanity, knows that death is foreign. And this is why, as a church, as Christians, as those who faith in Christ, you know, we can weep and we can have sorrow in death, but we do not weep and have sorrow as those who don't have hope. Because we know that in Christ, death is not final. But yet it's common to all people. It's like this foreign thing. So there was this alienation. So how then has God, is God's grace a cure for all of this? Well, I have good news, church. It's like the time for the firecrackers. Pop it up, pop it up, pop. Yeah! You already know where this is going, don't you? I mean, you've been here, some of you have been here for two years. You know that every single text in every way is leading us to the same firework. It's that God in his great grace has interrupted this trajectory. And so there's good news. And in verse 15, we have this grace-drenched 
prophecy. Theologians call it the Proto-Evangelion, which is Greek for the first gospel. God preaches the gospel in Genesis, right here in verse 15. That's the first preaching of the gospel. Who's the audience? The devil. Why is God preaching the gospel to the devil? There's no restoration for him. Oh, man, this is critical. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's so, it's so code red. Watch. God doesn't say, he says, read it in verse 15. God doesn't say there's going to be good people and bad people and I'm going to save the good ones. does not say it. God says, I'm going to put enmity in some hearts. What is that? The word enmity means hatred. What, what is God doing? God's going to put hatred in hearts. I'll put enmity in their hearts. What is this? He, in his great grace, is going to put hatred for the lie. He's going to, there aren't good people and bad people. The only category is alienated people. Everybody, apart from God's grace, is alienated. What does God do? I'm going to put hatred in the hearts of some for this lie. Hatred for the lie that I'm not good. Hatred for the lie that I'm not loving. Hatred for the lie that fulfillment isn't found in me. And by grace and through faith in Christ alone, I'm going to rise up a people out of this alienated group of humanity who are going to hate that lie and are going to come to my love. It's the gospel. We see it right here in Genesis 3.15. That God preaches this gospel that every and, and, and the reason why this is critical is that sentence, that verse, Genesis 3.15, that's the summary of all of Scripture. That is, all, that is the summary of the theme of all of Scripture in one sentence. All of the rest of Scripture, every person, every event, every teaching, every instruction, every account, everything happening in all of Scripture is all organized to make that play out. Everything finds its theme in relation to the grace-drenched, jaw-dropping prophecy of verse 15. That the Creator God is vowing, right here in verse 15, He's vowing to come as the redeeming God, to rescue, to renew, to reform, to restore, to fix this alienation, to fix it all. God, in a confounding defiance of what we deserve, undertook the commitment to save us by sheer grace. And this is why, from the beginning, right here from Genesis 3.15, we discover the subject of the Scriptures is not you. The subject of all of the Scriptures is what God and His great grace through Jesus Christ has come to do for you. He says right there, God moves. The moment man brings damnation, God offers redemption in that, in that very moment. And so, though there is sorrow and pain and suffering in our lives, we find right here, we find this image of a serpent licking the dust of defeat to remind us that our struggle is not going to be forever. It absolutely is not going to be forever. Sin is the disease and God's grace is the cure. And so he uses this, this phrase, bruised, twice. He says, he, meaning Jesus Christ, he's going to bruise your head, you're going to bruise his heel. Again, it's Hebrew poetry. It's using two words in parallel, but they mean two different things. Jesus, Jesus is going to bruise your head, you're going to bruise his heel. How did the devil bruise Jesus' heel? Through the, the crucifixion, a temporary wounding. To, to bruise the heel in Hebrew means to be wounded, but it's temporary. To bruise the head in Hebrew means it's a, it's a fatal headshot. It's a fatal and final wound. 
And God prophesies in Genesis 3.15, you'll bruise his heel, which he did, because as those nails were driven through the heels of Christ into the platform on that Roman cross, his heel was bruised. And how long did that bruising last? Three days. But also at the cross, Jesus Christ bruised the devil's head, and that was a final, that was a fatal blow. You see, the fatal wounding occurred at the cross, and the final wounding for the devil is going to occur at Christ's return. And between the cross and Christ's return, the devil is bleeding out. And this is the great hope that we have in the gospel, that God is restoring all things and that he will, in the end, restore us. This is the perfect picture of this, of God doing something about our alienation. And I close with this, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 21. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. For Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For he is the head of the body, which is the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Watch this now. And you, who were once alienated, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh, in his death, in order to present you as holy and blameless, above reproach before him. The alienation that we had with God has been reconciled in Christ's grace. We are united to Christ by grace. We are his children. The alienation that we have within ourselves is in a process of gradual, continual renewal by his grace. And the alienation that we have with one another, we can now approach that in humility and forgiveness because we are recipients of great forgiveness. God, in his great grace, he made provision to reconcile everything, to reconcile all of the alienation, so that in the end, he'll restore everything. The devil used a woman to bring death into the world, so God used a woman to bring life into the world. Adam was cursed uh, to eat bread by the sweat of his brow, and Christ reversed the curse by sweating blood from his brow. Adam was disobedient and naked and caused all our shame. Christ was obedient, stripped naked, and took away all our shame. In the beginning, their eyes were opened so that they knew what sin was, but after the resurrection, eyes were opened so we would know who our Savior was. In the beginning, disobedience was by a tree and it condemned us all to death, but on Calvary, Christ's obedience on a tree has redeemed us to life. The cause of all of our alienation is sin, and the cure for all of that alienation is Christ's grace. And church, you and I are recipients of that now. Let's pray.